0: Welcome to the successful athletes podcast presented by trainer road, where we interview successful athletes to make you a faster cyclist this week. We are joined by art O'Connor out of Utah. How are you doing art?
1: Great, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. Now I must admit that there is a prior acquaintance here. We know each other. Um, I've followed your strength training and still follow much of your strength training. You are, um, a strength trainer to the stars, shall we say here? Uh, so you are a cyclist of course, which we'll talk about, but you're also, um, Wukar is your company W U K a R. And you are actually a, um, uh, an athlete that trains Keegan Swenson. You train Sophie, you train tons of athletes, um, across the board, uh, that are, achieve great things on the bike and you handle the strength training side of things for them. So I'm super excited to have you on here. We're going to talk about strength training a bit, but we're really going to talk about a recent race that you did, uh, which is, uh, uh which has a funny name. It's called fat pursuit and it's because it's on fat bikes and mm-hmm. it is in, a fr- just absolutely hostile conditions. Can you explain a little bit about what fat pursuit is? And then we'll step back and into your background and get some more context.
1: Yeah. Fat pursuit is a an event up in island park idaho it's put on by Jay Peterberry, who for those of you who don't know just google his name and ultra endurance cycling and you'll see his name on pretty much any ultra endurance race that's ever been done he's probably won it or has the course record on it uh, but this is uh <laughs> this was his brainchild and it's a it's a 200 kilometer fat bike event uh, kind of in the greater yellowstone ecosystem so pretty challenging conditions of they have kind of their own microclimates up there the weather can change super quickly there's never a shortage of snow and it's a largely self-supported event especially this year with covid normally there are two or three checkpoints where you can restock with food get warm uh, whatever this year with covid there really wasn't any of that there was there was a store about 40 miles in that we could stop and restock at. And then luckily there were some trail angels out on the course at about the 75 mile mark that had a big pot of, uh, boiled potatoes and bacon and some other, uh, other good, uh, Swedish fish and pretty much anything you could want <laughs> at that point. And it was literally a godsend to have them out there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so this is, and so this is almost all snow or is it all, are you riding on snow the entire time?
1: All snow. Um, it's some, somewhat of a hybrid event in that it involves elements of bikepacking. Uh, because of the, the time of year and where it is, uh, you, you're required to have uh, winter camping equipment. So you have to have a bivy sack, uh, a sleeping bag, a stove. And one of the unique challenges is at some point during the 200K, if you're doing it in one push, you have to stop and bring snow to a boil just to kind of demonstrate that you know how to use your, use your equipment. Uh, a lot of people do this intentionally as an overnight. Uh, there was one gentleman who actually did took him three days to do it. Um, he was so, so his set the second night of camping, he, he bivied four miles before the finish. That's how tired he was and finished it on the, on the the third day.
0: (laughs) Wow. So the, I mean, for everybody, a conversion on that, that's about 124 miles in the snow with winter camping gear on very heavy bikes. And what are the temperatures like roughly? And you can give them in Fahrenheit. We'll, we'll convert.
1: Okay. Uh, this year it was relatively warm during the day. We had bluebird conditions, probably the best conditions we've ever had. So it was like mid twenties during the day and oh. it got down to minus 11, uh, during the night.
0: So that's about negative so, six Celsius, um, all the way down to negative 24 Celsius. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. So <it's, laughs> that's freezing. Uh, um, yeah,
1: it, it's a challenge for sure.
0: <laughs> this compared to, so and we'll, we'll, I guess we'll just transfer right now. We'll get into your background. This compared to racing cyclocross where you've got a thin skin suit, a helmet and a, a light cross bike. You must be carrying triple the weight at least, um, if not more with all the stuff that you're carrying when you do fat pursuit.
1: Yeah, the bike is pretty substantial. Uh, so I had a seat roll or a handlebar roll on the, on the handlebars and that had my entire sleep system, my, my pad, my bivy sack and my sleeping bag. Um, then I had a frame bag that had mostly food and, um, on my seat post, I had like a puffy coat, extra clothes, um, extra hat gloves, that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't weigh my bike cause I'm kind of a weight weenie and I didn't want that number in my head. (laughs) (laughs) But from talking to other people that had similar setups, you know, the bike was sixty to you know, sixty five pounds, that kind of range. Wow. So so you're carrying a lot of gear
0: four to five times the weight, probably in terms of equipment that you'd be carrying on a normal cyclocross is, and the reason I bring up cyclocross, so you, you race mountain bikes, you mean you do everything, um, and you do it really well, but you have 17 state cyclocross championships in the state of Utah, which the state of Utah is particularly competitive as well. So, so you're legit and you have, you're no stranger to, to competition at this level, when did you get into cycling? How long has your cycling journey been?
1: I, I did my first mountain bike race in 1988. <laughs> so it's been, it's been a while. I did one race that year. Um, I didn't finish it. I was, <laughs> I was on a Schwinn high Sierra and I did the, the typical noob mistake. Um, uh, went as hard as I could right from the gun, completely blew myself up, crashed, um, <laughs> 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 you know, limped into the finish with ripped shorts. You know, broken handlebar. I mean, like pretty much everything you could do wrong, I did wrong. Um, And then I kind of took a step back, thought, "This is dumb. I'm never doing this again." (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, ended up doing. uh, I I got my degree is in exercise physiology, and it was a class project. We had to design a training program and follow it ourselves, and pick an event to do it at. And I picked the Iron Horse Classic. Uh, mountain bike race as my event and i put together a training plan and actually trained for it and went to the iron and went to the iron horse classic um was i think it was fourth or fifth in the sport category there which notably was won by a guy named travis brown
0: um, wow. give you- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: um so that was uh that was eye-opening for me it was like wow i i'm actually kind of good at this and i it's not like i came off the couch and did this i actually ran track i ran track for the university of utah as well so i had a high degree of fitness, um, going into the, you know, wasn't, a, I just didn't just get on a bike and was, you know, kind of good. I, I did have a big background. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, it kind of grew from there and, you know, I moved up in the, in the rankings pretty quick turned, I got my pro license and at the end of, or the beginning of 1991 and rode for like the Sobey Cannondale team and some other smaller, you know, regional teams. Um, but you know, I was, I was a pro, but back in the nineties, they were pretty much giving out pro licenses to almost anybody <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of a golden age. Everybody was getting sponsors and it was a just right place at the right time. Um, you know, I definitely didn't set the world on fire as a pro. I think my best finish at a Norba national was uh, 16th at big bear one year. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I had a lot of fun doing it and, uh, you know, it kind of. Paved the way, no pun intended for a really exciting career and and uh strength and conditioning and and bikes, and you know I get to do a lot of cool stuff and hang around with a lot of cool people, so very yeah. grateful
0: so and you are a, a strength trainer now um well i mean you you also have multiple businesses as well. you're a busy man um can we take a little bit to talk about strength training in particular? when did that become for you along your story? when did that become of interest or a point of interest for you? Were you always strength training back at that point when you were training for iron horse and was that something from track days or is this something that you learned and started to build out and become more dedicated to as your career progressed?
1: You know, I was really fortunate. I started my athletic career as a junior ski racer, I think like you did Jonathan. Yeah. And my original ski coach was a guy named Warren Cochran who was a legendary figure in in skiing, all three of his sons were on the U S ski team. And this is kind of, I grew up in a really small town in Maine, 1200 people. And so for three, for him to put all three of his sons on the Utah or the U S ski team was a pretty phenomenal feat. And so I grew up idolizing the Cochran brothers and wanted to be a ski racer. And and in June, in my eighth, in eighth grade, you were allowed to do high school sports because our school was so small. Um, (laughs) and warren was a big original barbell guy so he introduced me into barbell training learning squats deadlifts power cleans that kind of thing and I was a really, really skinny kid, um, growing up. And, you know, I mean, you see this beefcake now and you're like, I can't imagine <laughs>
0: it, but <laughs> <laughs> for those that are listening to it Art just flexed. but art by no means, he, he is an Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he's very far from Chris Froome. He's an average guy. So uh, there was sarcasm there that I want to make sure that the, the listeners could, uh, could catch. Sorry,
1: I'm six foot foot seven, 195 pounds. So I'm not a, not a big muscular dude,
0: (laughs) but you're a tall guy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But but anyway, I really took to strength training because I was a really skinny kid and I was insecure, like a lot of kids. So I just got obsessive about it. And a good friend of mine that i grew up with we used to go to the gym and we would literally you know we didn't know anything about periodization or training we would just go and do squats until we couldn't you know we were crawling out of the gym um, <laughs> <laughs> but that it kind of ignited something in me and um and it served me really well i ended up you know i went i ran division one track and field but to, to go the backstory on that my freshman year of high school i ended up I was I wanted to be a triple jumper, so I don't know how much you know about triple jump, but there were meets my freshman and junior year where literally I didn't even make it to the sand. Wow. But that whole time, as terrible as I was, I was always in the gym lifting weights and just trying to get as strong as I could get. And then sometime between my junior and uh, or sophomore and junior year, my coordination hit. And my, and the strength, everything kind of came together and suddenly I was like one of the best people in the state of Maine, uh, broke every school record for every event that I did. and, And I always attributed that to just being strong, physically strong. And I kept weight training all through college and all through my bike racing career, because, you know, I don't have a prototypical body for, for cycling being, you know, the height that I am. And so I always felt like my strength was something that somewhat of a secret advantage i didn't really talk about it a lot in my in my Mm -hmm. pro days it was just something that i did on my own and you know a few people around me that i trained with Um, but it was and i always kind of trained people on the side like ever since i graduated uh, college in 1990 i was always coaching people on the side i had a number of other careers um during that time but uh 2011 is when i quit uh, my job in a i was working for a financial firm to pursue strength training full-time and kind of the entrepreneurial route. And, you know, I've since started a couple of businesses, um, since then, but strength training has always been the foundation of, of my success. And, you know, one of my sayings that all my athletes are sick of hearing is stronger is better. You know, Mm -hmm. I've always been a big believer in just getting yourself as strong as you can possibly be, uh, for your sport, and that's you know relative. You know the strength it takes to pedal a bike is much different than the strength it takes to be like a you know a football player.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it, did you ever feel now back in in the era that you're talking about with the, the golden age of mountain biking here in the United mm-hmm. States, it was a bit of wild west in a lot of ways, in the sense that it wasn't as um, perhaps optimized as you see today, you know, we have, you know, we're, we're talking about chain loss, you know, loss of efficiency through your chain. Whereas back then I'm sure that that wasn't a concern. Um, did you ever feel pressure though, from teams to, not be strong, to be frail, to be that light sort of athlete. We didn't really see the Chris Froome sort of, um, body type very commonly back then, even, you know, you think to the Lance Armstrong era, cyclists were bigger, um, they weren't as, as slight and dare I say, even frail as what we see at the top level of the pro peloton on the road side of things, but did you ever feel any pressure or did you ever feel that like your strength training in the, the muscle mass that you had was. Was hurting you on the bike working at odds against that?
1: No, it never did because it's really hard for me to put on muscle. So another backstory, when I was in college, I was pretty good at a lot of events. Um, but not really great at any of them. I was good enough to be on the team, but like, I was never in danger of like going to the Olympics or, or any, you know, or even being all conference or anything like that. Um, but the, the coaches wanted me to try decathlon they you know because i was you know I was relatively fast i could jump okay the only thing i couldn't do was throw and i still never learned how to throw but anyway they put me on a weight gain program um they hooked me up with a strength coach for the football team and i was literally eating seven to eight thousand calories a day in the gym twice a day i did this religiously for six months at the end of that i gained a grand total of seven pounds Wow. It's all muscle. <laughs> I was really strong, but it was, and and it was great, but it, you know, I didn't really, you know, they were thinking when we started this, I'd put on like 15 or 20 pounds. And so I'm the classic hard gainer in terms of like, you know, mm. putting on muscle. So it always makes me laugh when people say they don't want, you know, cyclists, especially that say they don't want to strength train because they don't want to bulk up and like, Bulking up is way harder than people think.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should be so lucky to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. As soon as we touch a, a weight, right? <laughs> yeah, so. Especially
1: if you're doing everything you should be doing on the bike, you're not going to gain weight by, yes. you know, by being in the gym twice a week doing, if you're doing proper workouts.
0: So for us cyclists, how, and I know that this is a really tough question to answer because it, we could go on endlessly on this, but maybe you can pick some like specific aspects of this. How should our strength training look different or be different from that of a person that is just going to get strong at the gym? So for those of us that are prioritizing performance on the bike, how should our strength training look differently to theirs?
1: You know, I see strength training almost like skills training for a mountain biker in that there's, there shouldn't really be any conditioning aspect aspect. So like, I don't have any of my athletes do like what would be called like a Metcon type workout. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really teaching them how to be strong. And that goes in, there's a lot of, that goes in behind that, but like, you know, bracing properly, recruiting, you know, recruitment patterns and things like that, teaching them how to recruit maximum amounts of muscle fiber for any given, excuse me, any particular movement, um, and how to execute that safely and be, and be repeatable so that it transfers well to the bike. So I really kind of hammer home with, with all the athletes that I work with that, like, this is skills work every rep. Should be done with the best technique that you know how to do and just know that, you know, nobody's ever done the perfect deadlift, but that doesn't mean we stop trying to do the perfect deadlift. So mm-hmm. I really like the, uh, you know, I, I borrow this from yoga. I used to kind of make fun of yoga people talking about, oh, my practice and I just roll my eyes. Like but mm-hmm. when I really kind of broke it down and thought about it, it, you know, that's what it should be a practice. Like you're striving for that perfect rep every single time that you're in the gym. And every time you go in the gym, that's a chance for you to work on that skill of being strong. Uh, so like my workouts and my athletes, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, the workouts, they don't leave the gym, you know, dragging their butt on the ground. Like they almost leave more energized than when they came because, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, very specific movements uh we're doing usually heavier weights lower reps with long rest periods in between so that we're getting the maximum adaptation that we can with the time we have and then the bike is where they really kind of you know put the fine edge on that blade so to speak
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and you mentioned something interesting on the metcon side of things so if i could put that into a literal context so you're likely not limiting rest periods to being really short and encouraging people to do like max reps in a certain amount of time and then move on to the next and move on to the next, because they're stressing that sister, they're already stressing their bodies in a similar way on the bike with interval training. So I assume mm-hmm. that you're giving more rest and just like you said, focusing on form.
1: Yeah. Focusing on form and, um, you know, we're not developing energy systems in the gym necessarily. I mean, we are, you know, to a certain extent, we are the ATP and CP system for the, you know, for those fast Mm -hmm. explosive movements. Um, We are developing those to a certain degree, but really that stuff is is mostly gonna come on the bike. The specific stuff's gonna come on the bike. You know, in, in the gym, it's really about teaching them, you know, how to move, how to generate force while they're bracing under a load, for example. So like, you know, pharma carries, things like that. Being able to move while maintaining stability kind of sounds like, you know, diametrically opposed things to do, but that's what we do on the bike all the time. Think about when you're out of the saddle sprinting, what are you doing? You're bracing your core, you're gripping the handlebars super hard and you're trying to put all of that power into the pedals. So, so you're trying to move really fast by, but also you're trying to lock other things down so that you're assisting the muscles that are moving. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, again, it's, you know, it's that skill, it's that being able to, you know, to lock everything down and still move. And more importantly, still breathe, especially in our sport, uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, especially for mountain bikers, um, you know, think of, a you, you hear it all the time of, uh, people like going through a technical section or something and they, you know, they hold their breath and then they get out of it and they're hyperventilating. You, know?
0: <laughs> you don't <laughs> even realize can... that you do it. It just happens. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. So, try to make the training in the gym kind of simulate that where, okay, you we're going to work super intensely, but you still need to be able to breathe. You still need to be able to move and you still need to be able to transfer that power where it needs to go.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Um, you're, you're a great source of knowledge on strength training for cyclists in particular, and I would encourage everybody to give our, a follow on Instagram and, and get in contact with him If you have questions for him, he's just fantastic for it. So, and thanks Thank for you. making people uh, safer and healthier. In addition to making, you know, helping them get faster. Cause that's a super, you know, really important thing, especially for us, average Joe's and Jane's that are listening to this, that have to go back to work on Monday. So okay. it's an, it's an important thing. Um, let's, let's focus in on fat pursuit. Um, as much as I just want to sit here and talk about mountain biking and especially like the glory <laughs> is of mountain biking with you art yeah. but focusing on a fat pursuit. So we talked a little bit about the event but you had done this, you had tried this event prior. Was it, um, the previous year to this in 2012, I guess it would be 2019, right? Cause this event happened yep. in late 2020 this time.
1: Yeah, I, I did attempt to, I've done, they have a 50 K version, which I've done. I've done it twice and I finished that both times. And then I, and when I first did the 50 K, that was kind of my introduction into what I would call ultras. The first year I did the 50 K I was looking at it on paper and looking at the previous year's times thinking, all right, this is going to be, you know, two and a half, three hour effort. I can, I, you know, I can do that easy. You know, like fat biking, it's on snowmobile trails. How hard can it be? Well, we show, we, we show up there. It's 35 below zero. It had snowed two and a half feet the week prior. So when it's that cold, even though they groom the trail, it doesn't really set up because it just, it doesn't go through that freeze thaw cycle and it, has it been can't cold. stick to
0: itself. Right? right. Yeah.
1: Right. So my two and a half to three hour effort turned into seven and a half hours of <sighs> <laughs> pushing my bike and dealing with, I mean, I was so unprepared, like all of my, I didn't know any better. So I had water and water bottles. They were completely frozen and useless, um, you know, 10 minutes into the race. I got a flat, had to change a flat at 30 below zero.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, <laughs> Do tires even bend at that temperature?
1: <laughs> uh, you, yeah, sort of. It was, uh, <laughs> it was no small feat getting the, breaking the bead and getting a tube in there. Um, but it kind of, when I finished, you know, it was a lot of pushing the bike because you just couldn't ride it. But I finished and I was thinking, wow, you know, I mean, it was by far the longest ride I'd ever done time-wise. I mean, I'm not an ultra guy at all. I, in fact, my rule used to be, I'm never going to do a bike race. That's longer than my average night's sleep. Cause you know, if I can't <laughs> sleep for 10 hours, what makes me think I'm going to ride my bike for 10 hours, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it just got me thinking, all right, I just did seven and a half hours on the bike. Um, I really didn't eat that much. I didn't drink anything because I couldn't, you know, how much, how, how far can I push this? You know, where, where can I yeah. go with this? But it still never even occurred to me to do the 200 K. I did the 50 K again, the following year. And then my buddy, Jason sparks did the 200 K He ended up winning it that year. And that was like, all right. I mean, J- Jason and I are pretty comparable on the bike and like, and not to take away from his performance at all, but like, you know, Jason can do it. I can do it. Sure. So I did it. I, I did it last year. You know, I, I tried it in 2019 and I made it 12 hours in. Conditions were probably the worst they've ever been. It was snowing about two inches an hour the entire time.
0: Oh my, that's heavy snowfall for those that, um, I'll, I'll I'll try to convert that really quick while you're talking here, but that, that's some heavy snowfall. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I got five centimeters,
0: five centimeters, an hour of snow. That's (laughs) substantial amount. Yeah. It,
1: It was crazy. I got to the second checkpoint, uh, which was about 60 miles in in 12 hours. And I'm doing, I'm doing the math in my head of like, it's going to be 18 hours before I finish. And yes. at, at that point, I'd gotten to the checkpoint. my GPS had died. Um, it's pretty much whiteout conditions. You have to go up over, up and over a mountain called two top, which is doesn't really have any trees on the top of it. Um, it's a long oh. climb. And I promised, I promised Suzanne, my partner that I wouldn't do anything stupid. And, Heading out without a GPS into a whiteout, going up over a mountain in whiteout conditions sounded stupid to me. <laughs> yeah. And also, I was having some knee, some knee issues, um, so I pulled the plug on it. And and it really like as soon as I made the call, I called my buddy who was staying in a cabin about forty minutes away to come get me. I instantly regretted it. Like you big baby. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, all right, I am going to come back and I'm going to, I'm going to crush this race. Um, so that kind of planted the seed to really kind of dig deep into, you know, the ultra stuff and, and getting the equipment dialed and, you know, being confident and being able to, to camp if needed in those conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was honestly the biggest fear of why I dropped out. Cause I was thinking I'm, I'm definitely going to have to set up camp and I've never camped in the winter without a tent, you know, in, mm-hmm. in a blizzard <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I was yeah. scared of it, honestly. So I just, I pulled out and, you know, kind of committed to learning, learning how to use my, use my equipment. Even though I had all this stuff with me, I had no idea how to use it. Um, mm. you know, I barely passed the water, bo- the water boil test that year. Cause I brought a butane stove, which I didn't realize they freeze and they don't work really well in the cold. <laughs> <So> <laughs>
0: I didn't I know that either. A-
1: Yeah, I managed to get it working enough that I passed the water boil test, but like, you know, so I I figured out how to use my equipment essentially. And I went to, uh, Jay's camp the week prior this year to really learn the survival skills and. You know, I slept in my backyard a few times and bivied and, um, you know, was boiling water in my backyard. So I'm sure my neighbors thought I was out of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I did, too. I'm like sleeping in my backyard and it's like 10 degrees. And I'm thinking, huh, I've got a nice warm bed inside with a beautiful woman. (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm out here in the cold like an idiot.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, no doubt the things we do for our cycling goals, um, within this whole process, you, you also trained, uh, you, you, of course, let's talk about your training now. So, um, so first context to it, you have, uh, the athletes that you coach both virtually and in person, then Mm -hmm. you have as well, you have a a screen printing business as well that you run, um, what are the things call for your attention? And then at what time do you train every day?
1: So I, I've shifted more to a morning, morning training. So my, my day tip, I have a 6.00 AM client pretty much uh, Monday through Friday, uh, five days a week. And then I usually have some on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I have someone after them. So that means I'm usually done by seven 30, eight o'clock um, with my morning stuff. And then I get on, I've been getting on my trainer, which is right here mm-hmm. and I'll bang out, um, you know, 60 to 90 minutes on that and then i go to the screen printing shop i'll i'm there until about 3 30 or so and then i go back to the gym i have my afternoon clients usually until about six every day and then when i'm there that's when i'm doing my strength training so i'm kind of working in with my clients and getting a few few sets here or there with with my gym stuff i I very seldom get a chance to just go to the gym and work and do like my workout straight through I kind of have to just piecemeal it through, throughout the day mm-hmm. from a, from a time time management standpoint, but it works for, you know, it works well for me. Um, and then my day, you know, my work day is usually done, you know, six, six or seven at night. Um, and then it you know starts, starts all over again. So my time is pretty limited, uh, especially this year. Uh, it was a weird year at the screen printing shop. We got, mm-hmm super busy in november and december like the busiest we've ever been and i wasn't counting on that i was planning on being able to put in some big huge your big huge rides but as it turned out you know i think my biggest training week um from november up until the race was eight hours so i yeah. never even got you know i never even got to do long rides on the weekends because i was i was we were so busy that i was working saturdays and sundays so I was you know i was getting out for like a long ride for me it was two and a half hours
0: so this, and this probably brings us to which plans you, you use to train uh, for this. Cause it's a, a, that addresses a big concern. A lot of people have, well, I have, this event I have is super long and I only, but I, you know, according to these plans, I'm only gonna be training for, you know, maybe two, maybe, maybe three hours, maybe, uh, at the longest. So which plans mm-hmm. did you pick and, uh, follow through?
1: So I went through, so starting in October, I d- I went through the base phase, um, just a mid volume, phase and kind of my, and then I, and then I did a build. I didn't do any specialty for this. Uh, just because I knew what the effort was going to be like, it's, uh, you know, you're, if you're out there, it took me 21 hours to do the race. Um, uh, I was an hour behind the win. I was in second place, an hour behind the winner. So, it, you know, way at, to go! That, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Um, it was 15 years old, by the way, that's a whole other story. You should get him wow. on the podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah. Holy cow.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. He's going to be doing Iditarod uh, at the end of this month. It'd be really fun to kind of follow his dot and geek out on that. Um, anyway, cool. um, you know, for an effort that long, you're obviously, it's not a zone four effort or, you know, you're not doing a lot of <laughs> VO2 max stuff. You're just, uh, you know, it's like low zone two, zone one. Um, but that said, just because that's all you're going to be doing. I, I think it's a huge mistake to do all of your training like that. Um, you know, I kind of always do a top-down approach and trying to be, you know, on the bike as well. I want my FTP to be as high as it can be, um, going into this, because even though you're not going to be necessarily riding at that level for very long, you, there are going to be times when you have to be able to access that due to conditions, uh, you know, with a fat bike and the snow conditions, you can be going from, you know, perfectly groomed snowmobile trail to kind of just this chundered stuff that's really hard to ride. And you're, you know, you're pushing, I I don't have a power meter on my fat bike, but I would be guessing you're pushing 300, you know, Mm -hmm. 2, 290 Watts just to keep moving in in certain Mm -hmm. sections.
0: Not to go faster, just to stay upright. You're saying,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I feel, I feel like that top end is really important in, in ultras and, you know, to go fast, you have to be fast. You know which Mm -hmm. which sounds kind of silly but you're kind of starting to see it i think traditionally in in ultra endurance stuff yeah it was just the you know the guys and the girls that just like to go out and ride their bike all day and they're attracted to that and that's what they did but you know you're starting to see you know like lachlan morton's doing a lot of ultra stuff now and he's you know of course crushing it because he has that top end Mm -hmm. you know he can go really hard and you know if, if he needs to but um you know even for him you know in these you know 30 40 hour races that he does you know for him it's like zone 2 his zone 2 just happens to be a lot faster than my zone 2 <laughs> or your yeah, zone that, 2 or
0: <laughs> Yeah that's a good point right it's about raising the tide so that that mm-hmm. their their sustainable pace is just it's it's much higher and you know this is an interesting thing that we've pointed out with gravel before and I'm not sure it's been fully misunderstood so maybe we can spend some time on this with the context of fat biking in the snow we talked about that faceted snow. That's kind of sugary and grainy that doesn't bond to itself. So it's like you're pedaling through sand. Literally there's so a huge amount of resistance when, if you were to compare, you know, side by side, if you had a perfectly smooth sidewalk and then you had the snow conditions you were riding on and you were to somehow be able to transfer back and forth seamlessly, but you were Mm -hmm. holding 10 miles an hour and you held 10 miles an hour in both conditions holding 10 miles an hour might require 50 Watts might require hundred Watts extra, just to, just to move at that 10 mile an hour pace over on the side. Now, granted, that's just the extra. So that's like, kind of like the, you must be tall to ride this ride, just to ride in that terrain, you have to put out that much wattage. And then if you want to go fast, then you have to add even more on top of it. So that's why these, this, a high FTP athlete, like you, you got to 348 Watts, which was, uh, uh, before this, um, event that high of a threshold allows you to be able to still punch that ticket of being, you must be this high to ride this ride, so to speak. But then mm-hmm. that doesn't put you up into Z three and Z four. It allows you to stay in Z two still. So it's something sustainable.
1: Right. It's, it, I kind of like think of it as it's kind of like buying into a poker game. So like a high stakes poker game, you've got to pay, it it costs you five grand just to sit at the table. But if you only have $6,000, you're only going to play a couple of hands before you're out. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus if you have $10,000, you can go pretty, you know, you can kind of dip into that reserve and live to play another hand, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And kind of the same thing on the bike. Like if you're, you know, if, I, have, I don't, like I said, I don't have a power meter on my fat bike and I don't have any numbers to back this up, but let's just say it takes a hundred Watts just to overcome the resistance of the snow and the weight of the bike and the tires and everything, you know, for somebody that it's the Watts per kilo in that situation kind of go out the window. it's more a matter of just pure Watts. So, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like, you know, it's, it's actually funny. Keegan and I have very similar FTP numbers. Obviously he's, you know, 50 pounds lighter than me. So he goes (laughs) a lot faster than me, but it's kind of funny to be able to look and um, and see, you know, I can kind of do almost the same workouts as he does in terms of just like, all right, they need to hit this number. I can't hold tempo the way he does for hours and hours at a time. But, um, a really good example of this is the year I dropped out, Alex house was there and I was with him or in front of him for most of the race no other bike racing format in the world am I even going to be, you know, <laughs> on this, you know, within a calendar, you know, type of gap on him. But because of, you know, because the conditions are so challenging and he had some equipment challenges as well. And I don't, don't the you know, I'm not bagging on him at all. He's a phenomenal athlete, great human sure. being, but you know, for him, he's a lighter guy. Uh, I don't know what his FTP numbers were, but, you know, they're probably lower than mine in terms of just absolute number. So he's having to work at a much higher percentage of his ceiling than I was. And so that Mm -hmm. was allowing me to, you know, to keep up with somebody like him. And again, any other race, you know, I'm not (laughs) even going to, I'm going to see him at the start and maybe, you know, having beer at the finish. But other than that, (laughs) nowhere near him.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's so fascinating that, that, and I think that is cross and gravel and even mountain biking gain more prominence. I guess mountain biking regaining that. Uh, they're just becoming more popular as time goes on. Hopefully that will help a lot of athletes focus on that. And that's why it's so important to be able to raise your FTP with all that. So you saw a raise from about 305 watts. Now granted you've been to very high peaks all throughout your career, right? So um mm-hmm. this is an example of not that this brought something out of you that you never knew existed. However, the training was effective and allowed you to go to, from 305 to 348 Um, so that's four Watts per kilogram, I think for about, for, for your weight.
1: It's about four. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is super impressive. And I've actually, and the interesting thing and something, I just want a personal anecdote to chime in on art and I have done the same races before. And it's fascinating to see that in some cases, even though I had a higher power to weight ratio, um, art would still be right there in terms of times right with me. And I think this goes to prove that you know, we're talking a lot about threshold here and we're talking a lot about power to weight too, and that matters, but at the same time, there's, uh, there are other nuanced things that come with experience that allow a rider to be able to execute really, really well. And I think that that's something that you have from, you know, we're talking decades of experience of riding at a really high level and training at a high level. So, um, sorry to make you blush, but anyways, you're, you're just a, you're an impressive athlete. So. Throughout this whole time, you've had five to eight hours of training a week on the bike while you went through sweet spot base. And then you went through a build phase. I assume sustained power build is what you were working on.
1: Yeah. Sustained power yep. build. Uh, but I actually put a few more, uh, VO two workouts in there than what was in there because, cause again, I was just trying to push that ceiling up uh-huh. that, as high as I could get it. Cause I, my, I've always found that for me anyway, the endurance kind of takes care of itself. And, you know, a lot of that is having 30 years of, you know, kind of base under my belt, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, you know, I've, and I respond well to, you know, hard training. Uh, you know, I, I do, like I can hold a high percentage of my FTP for, for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of always been my strength. I've always done well at races where, you know, I can just grind people down. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have a good, I don't have a good sprint. I'm not a great climber, but I can go uphill pretty, you know, I know how to position myself and how to, you know, use, use my strengths to my advantage. Um, and yeah, you know, mountain biking, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a world cup level downhill handler, but I've got decent skills and so I'm not wasting a lot of energy and same thing on the fat bike. Um, you know, I think being heavier in those situations is somewhat of an advantage. Um, looking back at cyclocross, I always did really well when the courses were slow and kind of sloggy, compared to lighter riders. Um again, it's that, you know, that that buy-in of, you know, you know, you, it's a hundred watts just to get on the ride. You know? <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. With with all of this training and, and everything else that you were doing, can I ask you how you like when did you fit in those VO two rides? Did you substitute them or did you add them to the training that you were already doing? Because I, I know somebody's gonna ask that very question.
1: Yeah, I I just uh substituted and so if mm-hmm. So rather than doing, uh, like I would take out one of like the longer, uh, tempo rides Mm -hmm. and put a VO two workout in there for that. Um, but again, that's just knowing myself and my body and how it responds. I I respond really well to those types of workouts. Um, so I just felt like I needed, I needed more of them than what was in, what was in the plan.
0: Yeah, Um, for sure. And that's what it's all about is finding out what works for you as an athlete and then you're able to tweak that with the calendar and be able to adjust all those things. Did you find any, um, uh, so I, I know that you dealt with injury and we'll get to that in just a bit, but were there any other unique or occurring challenges that you overcame throughout your training process? And how did you adjust for those?
1: You know, my biggest thing is I, I, I had two, you know, two, what I would call key workouts a week. And those were kind of my non, you know, as busy as I got, I didn't miss those. So everything else you know, it was negotiable. Like if I had to work, you know, a, a 12 hour day at the shop and, you know, and it, and it required, you know, admit that I missed a workout I, I did that on those other days, but those two key workout days, I was really vigilant and I didn't miss any of those. Mm. Um, cause that, that to me, that was just, you know, I just, I just scheduled it in my day. Like it was, you know, a meeting meeting with a customer or a vendor at the shop or something like this is this time's blocked out don't call me. I'm not, I'm not going to answer. <laughs> <kind of> thing.
0: <laughs> sure. Um, what about the, let's talk about the injury side of things. Um, uh, so you've been, and I know personally here and the reason, uh, it, it's been a long time struggle for you and it's been super frustrating. Uh, can you explain the back injuries that you have been dealing with and then how it affected your training?
1: Yeah. So I've got uh, a fair amount of stenosis in my L four L five. So pretty much bone on bone at this point, uh, the orthos that I've some, some are saying, you know, a, a you know the graft or, you know, mm-hmm. fusing a fusion is what's in my future. I kind of refuse to accept that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm just trying. So it, it, it flared up on me. I had some body work done around Thanksgiving time that kind of triggered something. And I had, uh, severe, um, uh, sciatica that was, uh, kind of manifesting itself in my glute and down into my, into my calf to the point where I was having a really hard time walking and getting out of bed. But oddly enough, I was able to ride, pedal my bike, um, pretty much pain-free, especially on the trainer. If, if I got outside, uh, on the fat bike and rode like. know, anytime I'd get out of balance or something, it would kind of shoot down my leg and it was super painful. So Mm. really from Thanksgiving up until the race, almost all of my rides were on the trainer, except for, you know, I did a few outdoor rides with all my gear on the bike, just to, you know, practice different packing techniques and, you know, distributing the weight on the bike. But those were pretty short rides, you know, usually they were, you know, an hour ish, Mm. um, You know, so the, you know, the trainer and trainer road were, you know, a pretty huge part of it because it, it kept me accountable and it it gave me structure as well. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like especially for ultra events, it's, it's really easy to kind of just think I just need volume, volume, volume. And yeah, in a perfect world, if I had 20 hours a week to train for this, I would have, but I don't. (laughs) Um, and so I just had to make the, you know make the time that i had available as productive as possible and you know having you know the you know the plan builder for me has has been fantastic um you know even though i'm you know i, I am a coach and i've have written plans for people it's really hard to coach yourself you know there's that <laughs> saying that the person that coaches themselves has a fool for a client yeah <laughs> <laughs> i like that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but for me plan builder really helps um to kind of take that out of it because it's it's almost like the 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 non non emotionally invested third party of like okay this is what you have to do you know and mm-hmm. then within that i can kind of make a you know tweaks to you know to what i think i need what, what i i think i need and you know from knowing myself and being an yeah. athlete for as long as i have i can i could can, I can, you know i can kind of make those tweaks pretty confidently and and, and still stay within the framework of the plans as, you know, as they're written by, by Chad and, you know, your your other awesome coaches there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's awesome to hear. And that's exactly that, that sort of all additional alteration is what we want our athletes to be able to do. Otherwise we just make it so that you couldn't edit the plans at all. Right. And, but we want you to do that. So, um, let's talk a little bit about how you prepped for this event. So there's, in addition to the race of fat pursuit, there's also like a, a training camp of sorts or. Training camp may not be exactly the right word as much as like an experience camp as well, because it's probably since it's a week before the event, it's not about building the fitness that you're going to have a week before to be able to race, but like you said, there's so much else to take care of in preparation for this event. So we talked about your previous time doing this event. Now we're going to talk about what you did here. What did you learn and change from your equipment and or preparation like of the physical goods you carried with you and that sort of stuff. What did you learn from prior to this time, and how did you change things?
1: Uh, I didn't change a whole lot in terms of my equipment. It was just knowing how to use it. So I signed up for the camp because, yeah, honestly, my my bivy plan the year before was really to call my buddy to come pick me up on a <laughs> snowmobile if, if I
0: if I got to the plan, point where I the had the plan to works up. great by the way. Yeah, <laughs> it worked. Yeah, yeah it, worked, it worked really well. <laughs> uh,
1: and that's not uncommon at this race. You know, Jay, Jay, has a, you know, a gear list that you have to have, and there's a gear check before the race. Um, and one of the reasons behind the water boil is he wants, you know, he wants to, wants you to demonstrate that you at least have some understanding of, of how to use your gear. Um, mm-hmm. and I, ne- and because it's super important because it is such a remote environment and the conditions can change so rapidly that if something happens, even if you call, you know, if you hit your, hit your spot for somebody to come help you, it may be a couple hours before they find you. So in that time, if you don't know how to keep yourself warm mm-hmm. and get, or, or get yourself warm and dry, the, the implications of that are pretty severe. I mean, you know, frostbite is a real, is a real danger. Um, the year it was 35 below, one of the riders, uh, almost lost two of his toes to frostbite. Wow. Um, you know, and just hypothermia in general, um, understanding how to manage moisture. Like you don't want to, you don't want to sweat through your clothes in in an event like this. So yeah. How'd you manage
0: that? I wanted to ask about that because like you mentioned, you may go through a stretch where it's just fine and easy and you're not really producing a lot of heat or work, but I also assume there's probably not a whole lot of coasting. Like you're probably just pedaling mm-hmm. for the majority of the time, if not almost all it, like a trainer kind of, in the sense yep. that you just don't stop pedaling. So there's like this constant work rate that's going on, which means there's a constant heat output going on. What's your layering scenario? Like, like what do you have next to skin working outward?
1: Okay. So that was the biggest thing I learned from the camp was, was layering strategies, um, lots of thin layers is way better than a couple of thick layers like i have this amazing asos jacket that uh, keegan and sophia gave me um, because they Mm -hmm. were sponsored by asos on the it's unbelievably warm jacket, but it's too warm for for fat bike racing because you know you take that off and you've got something light underneath it and you start shivering you know but you're wearing that and you start sweating so it's you know unless it's Mm -hmm. super super cold you're not you're not wearing uh, that in a race scenario, it's great for training and things like that. But still starting from the inside on my legs, I just had a pair of Gore Windstopper front tights, uh, mm-hmm. and then I wear a pair of baggy shorts over the top of it to get a little more wind protection for mm-hmm. areas that vital we areas. Get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't want to get yeah. cold. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, and that gives me a pocket, you know, a few extra pockets to store, uh, gels and things that you don't want to freeze. So you keep them close to your body. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then for my feet, I wear a really thin polypro liner and then a thicker wool sock over the top of that. A lot of the, a lot of riders will use, uh, they'll use like a turkey bag, like a bag that you bake turkeys in as a, as a moisture, as a vapor barrier. I tried that and didn't. I didn't like the feeling of, cause then your feet do sweat and you're trying to keep, yeah. you know, the idea is just to keep them wet and kind of maintain that microclimate. Um, I actually felt like my feet got colder during that, but maybe it just wasn't cold enough while, while I was there. Cause that's like everybody that does like, uh, I did a bike runs a similar setup to that. Interesting. Uh, but so I just had the really thin polypro, a thicker wool, so- wool sock, and then my, my riding boots. I, I use the Lake, uh, the lake riding boots and I was fine with that. My feet are notoriously cold. Um, yeah.
0: Can I ask you what the the polypropylene layer was for? Was that to allow like a slip plane against the the thick wool sock and boot or was that to for some sort of regulation of moisture or temperature?
1: Just an extra wicking layer to kind of pull that moisture away and get it into the sock cuz the wool sock will, you know, as you know wool wool is warm when it's cold. Mm-hmm. It's actually warmer when it's cold when it's wet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it and yeah, it does have that kind of friction, uh, layer as well. So you have, cause my winter riding boots are about a, about a size big so that mm-hmm. you have, cause you know, air is what insulates you. So having that extra room in there and being able to put a little bit thicker sock on, you know, is really important for, for winter ultras.
0: Probably stops blisters then with that bigger boot, uh, from developing if you have that, Something that's absolutely close to your skin, but not shifting like the sock or anything else might.
1: Yeah. And there's a fair amount of walking in these races too. I mean, there's, you know, one of the climbs was, you know, you, you were definitely pushing your bike on it and towards the end I was getting off and pushing my bike, um, just to work different muscle groups, you know, cause mm. you're, you know, you're just out there for so long. And also my feet would get it when your feet get cold, the best thing you can do is get off and start running.
0: And uh-huh. it warms your feet
1: up like instantly. So I was doing a lot of pushing and running towards the end. Cause it was, you know, it did get down to minus 11. Yeah. Um,
0: it's crazy but, cold. Yeah. But, but, to, but on your then, chest. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So then just a regular pair of bib riding shorts. Um, and then against my skin, I just had a mesh, like one of those fishnet uh, sleeveless layers. And mm-hmm. then I had a Merino wool, long sleeve base layer. And then a regular riding jersey, which had you know gels and batteries and you know, other things that needed to stay warm. And then I had a thin uh, merino wool long sleeve jersey that I p- put over that. And then a windstopper front vest that I wore pretty much the entire time. And then when it got co- you know at at night when it got really cold, I put, I had a um, a showers pass rain jacket with pit zippers. And I just put that over the top of everything. And then I put a warmer hat on as well. Hmm. Um, and that, and I was totally fine with that. I didn't need to go any. Th- so pretty, pretty thin stuff. It's, it's kind of what i found in, in winter biking is if you can keep your feet head and hands warm, you can go pretty thin on your torso.
0: Yeah. Cause so much you know. heat ends up needing to be shed throughout your torso as well. So. that, that, I mean, that there's no insulated puffy layer jacket on in this case. There's none of that stuff that we probably instantly, when we hear about this race, we think that you're basically going around in snow gear, you know, but you don't have any of that.
1: No, it's pretty light gear, honestly. I mean, you have a, I had a puffy coat with me. So like when I stuck, like I talked about the trail angels at mile 75, you know, that was about 11 o'clock at night by the time we got there. And so as soon as it went. As soon as you stop, you put your puffy coat on, you put dry gloves and a dry hat on because you get cold so quick Mm. when when you, when you stop like that. So that's one of the, one of the keys is when, you know, if, if you know, you're going to stop, you've got to put on your warm stuff immediately. Cause once you, once you get chilled, it's really hard to come back from that.
0: Yeah. So how'd you pace this? Like, did you, you mentioned that you didn't have a power meter, but what was your like, how how did you even think about like what was the accurate or best pace to be able to hold? Were you planning on walking certain sections in advance? How'd that all work out?
1: So pacing wise, I I just um, I tried to use my uh, breathing as my guide, and I had a heart mm-hmm. you know I had a heart rate monitor on, and I was trying to stay below one fifty. But as you know, in a long event like that, you get that cardiac drift, and your heart rate becomes less and less relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was just, if I could nose breathe and that was kind of, if once I got to a pace where nose breathing became hard, I would back off a little bit.
0: So basically and, crossing that like VT one barrier that a lot of people talk about. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: And so I rode the first 75 miles more or less with like, I was, uh, there were four of us that were kind of the, the lead group at the start and then. Got to the first checkpoint and that's where i did my water boil um was at that checkpoint and then i when i started back up again i was i was the first one to go to start back up and then or no i actually caught i was the second one to start and the the guy who won jacob hora uh the 15 year old (laughs) was in front (laughs) I, i caught him and i rode with him from probably mile 40 to mile 75 and at mile 75 was the second big climb of the course. And, you know, he just pulled away from me there. And I didn't even really try to, you know, at that point, you know, we're, you know, 15 hours into the race. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. It's not like you're attacking or really changing your pace much at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, no so con- no like,
0: contador type of antics going on there, right?
1: <laughs> no, no. He's, you know, he's, he just kind of pulled away from me on the climb. And, I, you know, I, I never saw him again. And then, hmm. um, so I was pretty much, well, not by myself. Cause, uh, Jay actually got to ride his own event this year because of COVID. It was, it wasn't an official event. Um, it was, you know, he had to cancel it because of permitting and, and so forth, but unofficially there were about 20 of us that showed up at the, you know, the, the original start date, start time and rode the rode the original course. So he got nice to do time. his own race and he was, uh he was kind of bouncing back and forth. I mean, I say I got second. I mean, he clearly could have finished and he ended up finishing a minute behind me, mm. but he was, uh, he was riding up to me, checking on me. And then he was dropping back to the group <laughs> that was behind me and kind of doing that. So like he was, you know, kind of at will closing gaps and coming back up to us, um, <laughs> which was really impressive to see, you know, because, you know, again, he's just like, you know, all time when it comes to that kind of riding. And it was yeah. a really neat experience to be able to experience that with him and kind of, uh, you know, be on the same, same playing field, you know, it's, it's literally like, you know, for, for ultra endurance, it's like playing basketball with Michael and Michael Jordan.
0: <laughs> it's pretty cool. Right? Yeah. That's a unique experience. Um, yeah. did, did you, uh, can I ask you two que- or three questions that have been weighing heavily on my mind here? Number one, mm-hmm. what did you do instead of using butane? Cause he found out that it almost froze the, the year before. What, what is a better option?
1: white gas so like a msr like whisper light stove okay um, they, they don't freeze at all uh, i mean people a lot of people do use butane but they'll just they'll hold the can- you know when they know they're getting close to their water boil they'll put the canister like in their jersey um mm. and and just try to keep it warm yeah So the, i mean they sort of work but you know again and in the, in you know, I don't want things that sort of work in those conditions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Best not yeah. to do that. What did you do yeah. about the, the Garmin or, or head unit, your navigation thing and battery? How'd you solve that problem?
1: So I used Oahu and from prior experience, I know it, I mean, last, the year before it went 12 hours without, before it died and I didn't have an external battery. Well, actually I did have an external battery, but I didn't keep it warm and it was uh. dead. So it didn't work at all. So this year I had, you know, I had a battery bank. Um, it's, uh, actually right here. This little cool. uh, if dark,
0: dark. <laughs> if you watch us on YouTube, it's about, or if you're not watching on YouTube, which you totally should by the way, but if not, um, so it's, it's about the size of a, a cell phone, like a large cell phone. It looks like,
1: yeah, it's a 10,000 mah brick, uh, you know, power brick. Um, uh, so I had that, uh, in my jersey, you know, like zip, like between my, uh, base layer and my Jersey. Mm. and then I had a long cord that i ran from there out to my to my wahoo mm-hmm. and that kept so that it, it ran the entire time i mean it the wahoo awesome. itself said zero percent battery for like the last seven hours but it was just running off that battery
0: <laughs> it's nerve-wracking for <but> yeah. <laughs> it was yeah <laughs> it was. I was like like god it's not going to be on Strava
1: it didn't happen
0: <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> what did you do for uh hydration you mentioned that you put you know water in your bottles before, and those froze, and they weren't really useful. So, what did you do this time?
1: So this time, I used a hydration pack, and I get you put that under under everything, and mm. you run the hose up under your armpit, and you kind of keep that out of the weather. So there's a little bit of discipline to drinking in in winter conditions you mm. you know you fish the you get the hose out, you drink, and then you blow all the air out of the tube because if it's going to freeze, it's going to be in the tube. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, stuff it back on. So I, I literally have the, the mouthpiece under my armpit, which is kind of nasty, but, <laughs> but it, kept it, <laughs> it kept it from freezing. Um, and it's an insulated, it's actually hanging on the wall behind me. It's a, the revelate, okay. um, uh, winter, uh, hydration pack. So it's um, all,
0: it has an insulated hose and stuff.
1: Yeah. Insulated hose. The pack itself is insulated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a pretty common, a lot of the winter fat bike guys use something similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I filled that at, at each aid station, uh, the first one, I topped it off and then the second one. And so I, and, but I still, I ran out of water. I didn't have water for about the last hour, but, um, wow, you know, the big challenge on this, especially this year, because we didn't know, you know, we were anticipating there weren't other than that store that was at mile 40, that we wouldn't be able to get more food out on the course. Mm. So it's, you know, you can't rely on gels for an event that long anyway. But (laughs) in the winter, they freeze. So that's a chance. So, you know, fueling yourself for, for an event like this, you know, presents its own challenges, because you need something that's not going to freeze, you know, that that's going to give you enough energy. And you know, I used uh, kind of a, a a trail mix, kind of a custom trail mix that I did. Where I take the raisins <laughs> out because I learned the year before that frozen raisins are a good way to chip a tooth. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
0: oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, things you just never think about. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but I did use gels. I used SIS gels. Um, but you know, you can't eat enough gels, and you can't carry enough gels for you know. To, there's no way you're getting hundred grams of jet you know, carbs from a gel for a 20 hour event
0: <laughs> the yeah. trailer behind you. Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, you know, and you just eat a lot of real food. Uh, you know, I had a lot of cookies with me. Um, I had pop tarts, but they didn't really work out too well because they, they don't travel well. They were
0: yeah, <laughs> they were crumbly. kind of mashed
1: by the time, by the time <laughs> I got to them. Um, but then the, the biggest mistake I, I didn't eat enough uh, at the second checkpoint I should have stayed longer and eaten more, mm. uh, than, than what I did, because I mean, I had, I had 6,000 calories on the bike with me and I probably only ate about half that. Wow. So that's if I do it again, well, I mean, I'm definitely doing it again, but you know, I'll, I'll be more disciplined in my eating and just try mm-hmm. to, and just eat more. Cause, uh, th- that's, the, that's definitely something I have to figure out because the big goal for next year is, is ITI I'm going to do, I did a bike next year.
0: Oh, that would be awesome. How cool Uh, (laughs) Art, this is, this has been awesome. You've shared what you've learned, what you would have done better. Um, just super impressive. I, I think that this is a cool and, and something that these days we're hopefully seeing that cycling fitness can be used for a lot of different variety of events. This is definitely something that pushes the envelope a little bit from what we learn about regularly with cycling events. And I just think it's super cool. And, um, yeah, it's just been a pleasure also to have this chat with you as a friend, I, r- I really appreciate it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add with this art, whether it be for somebody that's curious about this event or or anything else in general, is there anything else that you wanted to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, for this, uh, if anybody's curious about doing this event, go to fatpursuit.com and learn about it. Uh, Jay's actually doing another one of these uh, three day camps at the end of March. And if you have any interest in bikepacking in general but particularly bikepacking in the winter go to that because you will get a phd level education um uh, just yeah. giving so the one i did rebecca rush went to it as a camper and paid to be there
0: wow to, how the cool
1: so when somebody like that is paying to get that kind of knowledge you you know it's legit i mean you know jay and his wife who's also done i did a bike and won it herself and wow. Kevin was one of the other instructors. Those guys just have such a wealth of knowledge and experience, uh, that I can't highly recommend going to that enough because you'll, you'll just, yeah, you'll come out of there a completely different human being and a different rider. Um, and other than that, just, you know, as far as training, just get on a plan, you know, the structure, you, I mean, we're talking about structure here, but it really is, it, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, yeah. my, my, uh, my partner, Suzanne is conditioned now to ask me like, did you go for a ride today or did you train? Yeah. <laughs> she, <laughs> nice. understa- she understands like the it. difference, the difference now, and there's nothing wrong with riding, but if you have performance goals, you know, train, get it, get it, get, you know, get on, get on a plan builder and just do it because the, you know, these, these plans are so well-written, you know, you, mm-hmm. yeah, you can go and hire a coach and there's some really great coaches out there, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's pretty tough to beat this, you know, just from a, you know, an, an economic standpoint and just a, you know, the time investment it's yeah. uh, you know, I, I can't recommend trainer road highly enough, honestly.
0: <laughs> well, thanks Art. Now you're making me blush. Um, appreciate <laughs> this, man. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they contact you?
1: Uh fit on Instagram and my cool. website is woo W U K A R. Awesome. Yeah, those, those, those are the best places.
0: Cool. Um, well, I'm hopefully looking forward to seeing you out at the soldier hollow, uh, stage race that will be happening out. Uh, and hopefully it's a stage race for us. Amateurs, uh, out there in Utah so. this spring. And fingers crossed COVID, uh, ends up adjusting and, and we end up getting on top of this thing so that that sort of thing can happen. Cause I'd love to see you in person again. And it'd be fun to be at the races with you. Uh, I, I really appreciate you doing this art. Thanks for using trainer road and being willing to share your experience with this, um, and for everybody that's listening, if you want to share your experience, just like art has, please do, uh, tell us how trainer road has helped make you faster or achieve any level of success, whatever that may be. Uh, for art, it was getting up to 348 Watts and four Watts per kilo to train for an ultra endurance event. That's completely off the map from these typical cycling events, but whatever it is for you, please share it. It'd be awesome. And you can do so just go to trainerroadcom slash SAP. And then I will go through those and I go through those constantly. And hopefully we can record a podcast episode together and help other people get faster by sharing your experience. So thanks a bunch art and thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, Jonathan.